You're not what? Well, I thought it'd be great to have you pray. Junior, would you like to pray for us? Open something prayer? All right, go ahead. Amen. Thank you. So this is just a reminder to you that um, the book of Corinthians, they're dealing with problems. Um, and so you can, you can kind of just deal with the problems, like we're dealing with divisions. Uh, but then what you really want to try to figure out is what, what is the theology underneath the problem that actually drives the solutions, okay? So he's very, um, Paul doesn't always give his theology in 1 Corinthians. Like Romans, he just lays out his theology. But in Corinthians, he's really dealing with practical problems, but it, his theology is what's driving his solutions, okay? So that's what we're all talking about. So we're in 1 Corinthians 1, we're in verse 20, and uh, he, he's been dealing with the divisions in the church, and, and in verse 17, it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So, uh, just kind of summary here. Words of eloquent wisdom. We, we don't want to make this completely black and white. So sometimes it's in the history of the church, it's been taken, oh, well, I should be as monotone and as non-emotive you know, as I possibly can, because if I do any emotion, that somehow it's my emotion and not the, God, not the power of the God, right? Um, or um, sometimes eloquent wisdom has been taken... Um, well, preachers should not actually go to seminary because that's the wisdom of the world. That's intellectual. We don't care. You're emptying it of its power. That's not good either. That's not at least not what we think anyway. But um, Paul used his, his instruction, his training in Judaism. He was fluent in, in uh, understanding of uh, even the wisdom of the world that he speaks of. Like he uses arguments. He's reasoned, all those kind of things. Even in the previous... Uh, church evangelism, like he, before he was in Corinth, he was in Athens, and that's where he actually spoke to the, um, you know, the great, they have like a um, little, not a coliseum, but like a, a arena or a place that they would speak where all the, and he got to speak in that place, the Arepagate or something it was called. Um, but now he's in Corinth, and he is emphasizing the cross. And typically in, in uh, most of Paul's letters, although he talks a lot about the cross, he typically focuses on the resurrection. He'll talk about the power of the resurrection, Right? Because the same power that raised Christ up from the dead is now living in you. So the power of the resurrection. But in this passage, he speaks about the power of the cross. Right? I mean, that's his focus. So, um, so I what, he's, what he's arguing against are the, this type of uh, sophistry. or what we sometimes called philosophy. Uh, and I, I would even in our day think of like um, really, really, really high intellectual scam artists. People that were so good at selling a lie to you that they knew it was a lie, but they could convince you of it that it's truth just because their arguments were so good. Okay. And basically what he's saying is, if, if, if the, 
the power to change people's lives really resides in the words of the speaker, that their power to mesmerize you and get you to believe what they believe, then the cross is not what's actually changing people's lives. And the idea of the cross, we talked about this last time, um, the cross is death. So it's not only, it's two things. It's death of your leader. So like the guy you're following was killed. So uh, that's not really a, a good sell. Nobody likes a loser, right? You know, hey, let's be a Browns fan because we have not won anything in 30 years, you know. So that's, that's not usually the sell. It's usually, oh, let's be a, you know, New England Patriots fan or something like that because they win. Um, and even like Cleveland Indians fans, we haven't won in like 60 years. Uh, everyone like, when it comes playoff time, we all have our favorite team that we switch to to watch the playoffs because the, the Indians are not usually there. So anyway, you don't, you don't follow losers and that's what's happening uh, with the cross. You're following a leader who is a loser. He lost. You're saying that you win through losing kind of thing. And that's, that's one half of it, but it's, the other half of it is if Jesus wins through his death, that means that you too in this life will only win through dying. Okay, that's a hard sell. So you got a young person, we only got one young person here right now, so uh, Jet, you, uh, you, know, you got things you want to do in life. You got, you want to get a good education so that you can advance to get a decent job that you really want to do. And, and you might want to marry the right person so you could have a nice family and you want to have kids and a home and all these dreams. And the cross basically tells you, die to everything. That's a hard sell. Maybe a little bit easier for the older folks in the room because you've lived your life, right? <laughs> and you're saying, ah, yeah, yeah, life hasn't been everything that I wanted to be, so yeah, I, I die to self is probably a good thing. But as a young person, that's a hard thing to sell, right? But that's what the cross is. And so if you're preaching the cross, it's hard to make that eloquent. It's hard to make that beautiful, right? So that's what Paul's saying. I'm not going to give you a, a, like a clean... Uh, beautiful kind of message that's going to feel really good and go conquer the world or do this. He says, I'm preaching the cross to you that you're going to die um, because your Messiah died. So that's where he is. Okay. Uh, we're in verse 20. He is nine, I'm still giving context. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart those are quotes from the Old Testament in, in Isaiah, and it's God speaking um, in the Old Testament. Isaiah is uh, telling the people, yeah, your heart is in rebellion, so God's going to actually crush Israel. And that was not a very good sell at that time, right? So, so then Paul is taking this concept of a prophet that's not popular, that's telling people that that God's going to judge them and they're going to die, and he's using that for the cross. So that's, that's where we are. So then Paul kind of switches a little bit of gears, and he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the wisdom, made foolish the wisdom of the world? <clears throat> so based on kind of what I've been telling you and... and uh, Put this into your own words. What is Paul's statement to them right now? Um, what's he trying to say here? Yes. The wisdom of man. And could somebody try to define... The wisdom of man. I mean, I know it could be several definitions, but the wisdom of man, how do we try to... Human reasoning. Now, that's true. It's good. But, but we all have to have human reason. Okay, so we're adding secular 
So, okay, what's the difference between just human reason or logic and secular reasoning? So when you say reject the gospel, um, Paul would say particularly they reject the cross. Yeah. Right. If you're wise in this world, what does that mean for you? If I said, John Avery, you've been very wise in the way that you've uh, lived your life in this world. What, what, what am I saying to him? He's been successful. You know, he was faithful keeping his job. Had his marriage together, you know, raised his kids, went to work every day, saved some money, you know, those kind of things. He's, he's as opposed to the person that was foolish, right? Spent all their money, did all their, just very foolish. Um, you've got this wisdom of the world. Um, that's one example. You've been successful, you've done these things. The wisdom of the world assumes that this world is what you're living for. That's the basic assumption. That's why it denies the cross. And I, even though that I think John has been small, not small W wisdom, he, ha, he hasn't chased after the wisdom of the world, but I think in a, in a limited this world sense, even God's word teaches John how to be, have wisdom in this life. But the Bible also teaches you this world is not your home. <laughs> and so and there's a, there's, that's not what the wisdom of the world's going to teach you. right? They're not going to teach you that to give up things, to, to live a life of sacrifice. They're not going to tell you that kind of stuff. It, it kind of seems that the wisdom of the world always teaches that man is the measure of all things. And that's part of the rejection of the gospel, the cross, and everything else. It's success, it's uh, power, it's human glory that um, make uh, worldly wisdom, if you want to call it that. The greatness of man. That man is the measure. You know, I want to be great. You know, those sorts of things. It's centered on, on man. Um, I'm just trying to, I like conceptual. So I got truth coming from God, truth, truth as you observe and look at the world, using your mind, and now just the emotions coming at your heart. So, The verse 20, verse 21. Uh, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Um, can wisdom, you know, things generated from the heart or things generated from the mind, my just searching, can I uh, find God? No. It has to be something that's brought to us in Revelation. And what Paul's saying here, it is the foolishness of what? Yeah, and particularly preaching what major doctrine? Yep. So you can see how these, these, back to my old thing where the tree's above the ground, people are saying, oh, you got to hear this guy because this guy's got it all together. You can hear that. That's wisdom of the world. That's focused on that man. That's who he is. Paul's saying it's not the preacher itself. It's this message of the cross that actually changes lives. 
Yeah, he actually he actually thwarts it. Like the wisdom of this world could have some uh, productivity, and it does sometimes in this life have some productivity. But God thwarts it. And if you question that, come out to our Ecclesiastes study, and you'll see how often He thwarts the the wisdom of this world. It just doesn't work. It's like when God put a curse on this world, He made wisdom of this life not as productive as it could have been. It's actually built-in frustration. Um, our mind can, can reason, it can work, but it can't reason all the way up to God. There's something that's, that's hindered of that. And so unless God comes and does something, we can't actually know him. Um, and it gave God pleasure. It gave God pleasure to do this. So because, you, and this gets at the, you know, we all have sins, but, you know, I can, I, and some of those sins are different from one another. But I can tell you that every one of you, in some sense, deals with, deals with this sin. Right? And so Paul is telling us that God actually wants to take those who have all these reasons for have, having pride, and he wants to say, yeah, that's not the way you know me. And he'll actually save those um, in another way, through this foolishness of preaching the cross as the way that people are saved. Um, yes, that's right. That's very good. And, and God makes it that way. He could have made us so that we could have figured him out on our own. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to crush us. In fact, when man was making a lot of uh, progress to uh, escalate their thinking to God, Tower of Babel, he, God frustrates their languages because he doesn't want to be known that way because he, he wants man to be humbled. He's taking out this root of pride within us. Now, does that mean that God can't save somebody who's really, really smart in this world? No, he can do that. He can do that, but it won't be because they're smart. <laughs> uh, the way I would the way I would say it is, um, if there's if there's a quality that I have that God has gifted me with, it's friendliness, and my friendliness didn't get me to God either. So it, it was in my sinfulness and my evil that God showed me my need for Christ. So. Um, okay, uh, 22 through 24, Leanne, would you read that for us, please? Here comes Nathan with the... Thank you. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Okay, so um, he says Jews demand signs. What's that referring to? Where do we see the Jews demanding signs? The Pharisees asked for signs, but even the the whole people, right? Jesus did the miracle of feeding the 5,000, and what did they want? Do it again. (laughs) Do it tomorrow. (laughs) You know, just keep doing it. So, um, and again, you can see the demand for signs. What are signs? They are, they are miraculous displays of power. That's what these signs are. When he feeds 5,000 people, that is a miraculous display of power. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, that's a miraculous display of power, okay? So Jews demand these signs. They want more and more of them. They want more and more proof, right? Uh, and the Greeks seek wisdom, and we've already been talking about that and what they valued in that wisdom. They actually felt that, that wisdom itself, the intellect, could actually achieve life for yourself. That's what they, it's that, you know, important. And he says, no, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called, now, when he says called there, Anytime you see the word called, 
you need to ask, does it mean the outward call or does it mean the inward call? What do I mean by outward call? No, not just general revelation because that... that um, Yes, yeah, so it's, it's, it's just the preaching. You got, someone comes in the church and I say, you need to believe in Jesus Christ and repent and be saved. That's an outward call. It's coming from my voice. The inward call, who gives the inward call? Holy Spirit, right? And what Paul would say is, they're not like one here and one here. He looks at it this way. The inward call, if this is the outward and this is the inward they, they go together. As the outward call is being given, you trust that this inward call of God is going to call people. And so he say, you know, he could preach the gospel and it could be a stumbling block to many Jews. Many Jews rejected what he had to say. Uh, many uh, Greeks thought it was foolishness. They ran him out of town. But for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So which one of these calls do you think Paul's using in that particular use? It's got to be the inward, right? The inward call of God is the demonstration of the power of God to save someone. The outward call itself does not have that power. It, it, God is pleased to use the preached word to bring it about, but the, the word itself is not the power. So this is, everything I'm teaching you now is theology. It's down below the surface. But Paul basically is saying, hey, you guys are putting too, too much emphasis on the person. Oh, that goes against my theology, because my theology says the power is not in the person, not in his words. The power is in God, who calls people to himself. See how that theology is working out? And so if you, you, could, you can underestimate the preacher, and you can overestimate the preacher. And he's, you're going to see how Paul's going to help us here um, as time goes on. I, it really does all this through chapters 2 and 3 and 4. Um, actually, I'll just do this for a second here. Uh, look, at, look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is what I was looking at this morning in, in my devotions. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So that he, Paul's not saying... The preacher is nothing but a voice. He's not just like a, a robotic voice that God's just happened to work through. The preacher is a steward of the mysteries of God. He's, a, he's an assistant to God saving people. Like he's helping in this, this work of God. So he's pretty important. Don't like devalue him like, oh, the preacher's nothing. Who cares? We'll just get anybody up there to preach. You know, we don't care if they know their theology or not. You just bring them in. No, that's not what he's saying. At the same time, you don't want to put so much emphasis on the preacher like it's all him. He's got the power in him. That's not it. So Paul is trying to, you know, again, truth is a ridgeline, trying to paint this ridgeline for us. All right, so back in 1 Corinthians 1. Um, <clears throat> Another little theological point here. So, Paul says, so in verse 24, when somebody is called, whether they're Jew or Greek, this is what they recognize. This is what they believe, okay? This is what is happening. And he says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, okay? So I'm kind of theologizing about this, and what is the greatest demonstration in all of history of God's power? Resurrection, 
What, I agree with you. Uh, but what does he say is it here? Christ, uh, you have to kind of go back to, I guess, um, uh, uh, trying to see here. Look at verse 17 again. The cross. He says, he says the cross is emptied of his power. You tell me. Would you, I mean, if someone said, what's the greatest demonstration of God's power? I'd say the resurrection. Just like you. I mean, that was it. Paul says, it's the cross. What's the greatest demonstration of God's wisdom? The cross. The cross. Now, why is the, why, what about the cross is a demonstration of God's power? Okay, it, it, there's life to the lifeless, but uh, I think that is um, more connected to the resurrection. Just fair enough, you know, I, I'm being devil's advocate here, you guys. I want you to keep thinking this through. What about the cross was God's power? Now, I'll give you a little hint. Think about Philippians 2. If you need to turn there, if you're not familiar with that, that's fine. But what's going on in Philippians 2? It's just so backwards. The humiliation of Christ taking on flesh. Uh Uh-huh. It just seems so wrong in some way um i don't know i don't know that's just it just hit me that it just seems really really backwards it's almost like it's not like he defeated himself but he defeated what would seem like the very most powerful thing he could do it just killed that in some way yeah think about like the greatest warrior in history you know i don't know who that would be um but but that person having to restrain their power, even, even let someone else beat them, that's power. Humility. And when you think of what he's trying to destroy in each of us, which is pride, he, his greatest act of power was his humility. Even though he was God, in the, he knows he's God. He knew who he was. He was willing to be mocked and beaten and spit upon and endure the death that we deserved. That's power. You to find go ahead. to remain righteous in all of that is power. What's that? To remain righteous and to all remain of that. righteous. He doesn't. He doesn't sin in all that. He he willingly takes that in himself. He he becomes sin for us. How many of you would do that? Think about someone that you just abhor. Like, that's just an evil, gross sin. Would you bear the punishment of that person's sin? Would you, would you say, I'll not just be punished by it, but, but, but so identify with that sin that it will become you, that it is yours, you're taking it upon yourself, and you're willing to bear the punishment of that? That's power. That is the power of love. That's different than just the power of strength. How hard would it have been for for God to just destroy the world and create a new world after Adam and Eve sinned? That wouldn't have been much for him. He could make people to praise him out of rocks if he wanted to. His greatest demonstration of power is to actually say, I will bear the sin of Gary. And take it upon myself. And this is really real to me when I would speak to Muslims when I was over in Turkey. Because they over and over and over again told me, no righteous man would ever do that. No, he would not do that. It was foolishness to them to think that the most righteous person in the world would bear the sin of another person. Foolish. 
That is God's power. Okay? Yeah, no. It's unthinkable that a crucified criminal could be the savior. Yeah, he takes he takes the like the the uh, the worst form of punishment. You'd rather be hung or stoned or like to be crucified was just terrible, and so he takes that upon himself. Yep. So then, if this is the greatest demonstration of his power and the greatest demonstration of his wisdom, so here he says, "How am I going to defeat sin?" I'm going to let sin defeat me. Now, we know it's not ultimate defeat, but it really is defeat. Because the kingdom that was his, his, this world, this created world, Jesus says, I'm going to die to all the glories of this world. I'm going to give them all up. Isn't that what Satan said? If you'll just bow to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. And he says, I, I, I just want to follow my, my Lord. I, this world means nothing to me. That's power. Isn't that what you love to see when somebody's converted? You start to see them just like, it's what I hate about myself when I just kind of get in the doldrums and I just start living for this world, you know? So, the beauty of this wisdom Jesus knows that not one of you has the power to die to sin. And you think about this. You, you, you can't kill your sin. You love yourself too much. You think you can kill your sin? No, you can't. You can't do it. So what does he do? He says, he says you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to die. I'm going to do it. He's not dying to his sin, but he is dying to this world, right, when he goes to the cross. So he does that, and he bears the punishment for us, and that's, that's substitution, uh, atonement kind of stuff. But then there is a union when he calls somebody, when he actually calls Beth to be saved and, and awakens in her faith and repentance. There is a union that occurs between Beth and Christ, such that everything that Christ has done, Beth has now done. And that makes no sense to me, but it's true. Such that Jesus Christ knew Beth couldn't kill her own self, so he basically straps her on his back and takes her to the cross. This is what's taught in Romans 6. Look at Romans 6. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Uh, Look at verse 5, for we have been united with him in a death like his. Right? So so this union with Christ is such that, that, that... Christ says, Beth won't kill herself, so I'm going to put her on my back, and we're going to die together. That's what he says. Now, I get it that we're still struggling to die, but, but in theological terms, the crucifixion has already killed you because you've been killed with Christ. That's my favorite uh, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? So the death actually enables me to die to myself, to die to this world, to die to sin, because I've been united. with That's wisdom of God. So the way that I win is by being united to a guy who's dying. That's the message of the cross, and that's foolishness to the world. So then connect this with Jesus' command that anybody who follows him must die. Luke 9. He said to all, if anyone would come after him, come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Right? So here's a command. 
You want to be a follower of me, then you got to die. But the gospel is that even though you don't really know how to kill yourself, you trust in me and we will die together. I'll take you to your death. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And isn't that what sanctification is all about? He takes you through life, you know, and he's still sanctifying you. Clark, you were telling me just the other day about how God has been changing what is most important to you over time. Who who did that? Was that your active will? Or was that something that God's done in you over time because you're united to him? That's, That's union with Christ. So you can see how this theology below the surface is driving Paul. So when he sees people above the surface giving glory to man and what they're doing, he's like, you got it all wrong. But it's his theology below the surface that actually drives his thinking. So then, we're going to read 25 to 31. Um, Let's have uh, Erica, if you read that for me, please. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Okay. So, first off, Paul is using a comparison here. There is no foolishness in God. So let's just assume that right off the bat. He's not foolish, okay? But he's taking, he's like, we look at, like, some people foolish, and then, then the wise men here, they're, they're up higher, and he's saying, you can take the best of what this world has to offer, the smartest wisdom of this world, and it is below the foolishness of God, right? It's, it's like less than, than what God, um, you know, the strength of this world, you know, think of the best strength, the powers of American government or China's government or military, whatever you want to say, take the best, and it's, yeah. You want to see power? It would, be, it would be the rulers of America and China both willingly sacrificing that power to love other people. Did they do that kind of stuff? Mm-mm. So that's why it's foolish to them. It is this, yes. And it all, it all falls back on this world is what I'm living for. This is the prize. I got to live for this life. So if I don't get it in this life, I've lost. And Christ said, I gave it. What, what did Christ get out of this world? <laughs> Walked on the earth for 30 years, got ridiculed, beaten, put on a cross. All he got out of this world. Thank you. He got a bride through his death. But not a bride, not a bride to enjoy in this life. A bride to enjoy in the resurrection. Mm-hmm. He got Gomer, that's right. That's right. Now, and then Paul, he's been talking about this um, the grandiose, the foolishness of God and the wisdom of men, kind of black and white, those two things. But then he kind of says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make another point of comparison. And he says, the majority of people that God calls to himself. That's, I don't know if I'm spelling that right. G or J, is that right? Yeah, okay. The majority of the people that God calls to himself are from what pool? Lower echelon. I'm always a little bit conflicted when I hear like, oh, we're going we're gonna to see where we want to plan our church because this is like the, the very influential people and this is who we want to, you know, I'm like, is that, is that really what we're going for? <laughs> um, 
He says he, he, he doesn't say that he doesn't save people of high wisdom. He just says, just look at you guys. You're not really that smart. <laughs> You're not the, not the sharpest knives in the shelf, right? Look at me, we got, we got a, a Mohawk guy back there in the back. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Now, to grant you, again, this is why we're, that you need to understand that it's not just completely black and white. Paul's making these points. Paul is a smart guy. I mean, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, so he was one that was maybe would be considered up for the elite. So he's, but even in his own salvation, in order to become saved, Paul became a fool. Does that make sense? So even... Even if you are a smart person that got saved, or a powerful person that got saved, it wasn't because of your wisdom. And the way God shows that is he likes to just save the lowest of the low. I really like the testimony, Kyle, yesterday of Garth. (laughs) This guy... I, I had not heard his testimony. I talked to him, ate with him before. Um, Mary, this is uh, Garth Randall. And uh, he gave a really good testimony at Presbytery to come under care and stuff. And uh, he, was, he, was no, he was like a, a bouncer in a, in a um, uh, nightclub. And, you know, just, and God just, the reason why he started reading the Bible was because he was trying to, beat another guy's arguments or something like that. He was just talking with an atheist, and he's like, oh, I'm going to beat you. You know, Total terrible motives, and God used it to awaken his heart to, to Christ. And uh, it's, it's just pretty fun to see how he does this. Um, also, this is a little subtle Calvinism here. Uh, who determines who's saved in this passage? It's he chooses. <laughs> Whom has God chosen? The foolish things of the world. Oh, I thought it was just everybody equal. No, God, God's making a point. Why does God choose the weak things of the world often? To prove his power and to diminish ours, your pride. Ryan, you're a pretty smart guy back there. (laughs) If you think it's your smartness that gets you to heaven, God's going to crush that. Because that's not the way you get to heaven. Verse 31 is the climax of the whole thing. If you want to boast, what are you going to boast in? God himself. And he actually, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't totally diss our wisdom, because he's going to go and talk later about that there is a wisdom that God does in us. Christians are supposed to aspire to wisdom. But even that wisdom that a Christian's supposed to aspire to is going to lead you to boast in God, because it's not your own strength and ability to perceive and do the, it's God giving that wisdom to you that's where it is how about righteousness I'm thinking there of probably your your justification only in God then he goes right on sanctification you know how far have you progressed you know Gary's probably progressed a lot farther than I have so he can boast I'm a more sanctified person than you Mike Well, if he does, he's wrong. Because if he has grown in sanctification, it is only God's power working in him that has done that. And if he starts boasting one person over another, he's got it wrong. It is God's power. And then finally, the redemption is all about God's power. So you can thank God for your spiritual life, your wisdom, your righteousness, your holiness, your salvation. All of that is produced through one fountain, and that is Christ dying on the cross. So, way to look at this, the resurrection 
is the fruit of the cross. The cross is a seed that goes into the ground and dies, and from that springs forth new life. If it doesn't go in the ground and die, no new life. There would be no resurrection if Christ doesn't die. And the old hymns have this, right? Keep me near the cross. You know, you can sing that over and over, keep me near the cross, you just kind of go through it. But, but if you start thinking about it, oh, I don't want to get far from the cross because when I get far from the cross, it's all about me. How about there's a fountain filled with blood, right? The only fountain with which you have life is the blood of Christ. Why is it that in our, in our communion, we are to remember the death of Christ? Why not remember the resurrection of Christ? Because the death of Christ is the, where the power for your salvation is. Well, certainly because there's, there's always multiple things going on in theology, right? So one aspect is, okay, Jesus declared himself to be Messiah. He died on a cross. Great, he's still dead and buried in a grave. So without the resurrection, you don't have the declaration of the Father saying his death was sufficient to handle all sin and to justify everyone. So you would you'd be questioning whether his death really was sufficient to bring about our justification. Without the resurrection, there's no proof of that. It, it, is, it is God's declaration. My, my justice has been satisfied. My son has paid the penalty, and he's now raised from the dead. Because he was really burying our sin. And if he was burying our sin and it wasn't enough, then he would still be burying our sin. But now that he's raised from the dead, all the sin that he was born has fully been paid for, and there's justification in Christ. Did that answer your question? Yeah. forward to that, and those of us who live now look back to that, and it's it's power for eternity. Amen. And. Even the world recognized that a little bit because they had our calendar based upon Christ. Now, uh, what is it, CE, Common Era, or something like that? They change it all. So, um. Um, I love the phrase in verse 28. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So, so if God can save the lowest of the lowest of the low, and then he also saves the noble birth, and he does save some people of noble birth, right? If, if he, but what is he saying when he saves the lowest of the low, he's saying it wasn't the nobility that got you saved. So it's actually bringing to nothing the nobility as well. I've heard it said that the, the ground at the cross is level. Everyone goes to it at the same level. You can only crawl on your knees to get through. There's all these different illustrations, but, but that's the cross. So it doesn't matter how high-born, low-born, you're going through the same crawling on your knees to the cross to be saved. All right, we've got a few more minutes. Any questions? I might jump in a little bit in chapter 2, but any questions on what we've talked about so far? Yeah. It's, it's not just union with Christ, it's union with Christ in his death. I mean, the cross is everything, so. Okay, any other questions or comments or 
Okay. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Um, Davis, you want to read for me? And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, so we have, Paul has been talking about the theology of the cross and the wisdom of God up till now. Now he's going to start talking about what is preaching. Right? This is what he's so... It's what is he proclaiming? Um, and it's, it's rooted in uh, history. He says, when I came to you, that's when he started the church uh, on his second missionary journey, uh, he was proclaiming something. What was he proclaiming? Jesus Christ and him crucified. There you go. I know, it's a softball question, right? <laughs> um, what did he not proclaim? How did, how did he not proclaim it? Eloquently. And again, I just want you to know, it's not just don't use any inflection or that kind of stuff, but, it, but it's the, the idea that it's the, the words themselves are so... like. Um, like worm tongue in, in um, uh, screw tape letters. It's just so crafty in the tongue itself to, to make. That's not, that's not, I didn't come that way, says. I didn't come. It wasn't about my loftiness of speech or wisdom. That's not, it wasn't it. Um, I'm not the best orator. I don't have the best logic. Um, I didn't use a, the, the, the perfect wisdom. I simply told you, what does he say? He says, the, I'm proclaiming to you the testimony of God. We're going to focus on this. Does anybody have a different uh, version than that? Ancient Greek philosophers came into things like this to argue, and their argument had a purpose, and that was to overcome yeah. the person. Yeah, to manipulate, to over, yes, absolutely. Because if anybody, but, I mean, if anybody uh, knows Paul from his previous life, he could do all of that. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He could debate, he could argue, he could be very, mm-hmm. he, he, you know, he preached mm-hmm. the Torah or whatever, you know. And so he, to me, that's intentional. I did not come with the, Gifts that I had as a man before Christ came into my life. I'm coming now as a humble servant of the living Lord. Yes. Thank you, Davis. Um, I'm trying to make this clear to you guys. Now, I know you guys don't know Greek, but can you actually distinguish those two words? Huh? Yeah, these two right here. See how they're very close to each other? Especially this A, you could have, if I just went like that, you know, you can almost see that that's an A right there. And if you don't bring this down, it's, you can see how those two are very close. Marturion, Mysterion. Martyrion is the word we get martyr from. It's the word for testimony or witness. Musterion is the word for mystery. Okay? You can see how both of these are... Um, this is just a little fun. Yeah, we'll finish this just having fun here. So um, let's do this. Um, 
uh, Barry, you look up um, 1 Corinthians 2.6. Junior, 1 Corinthians 4.1. I, I shouldn't even call him Patton way over there. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13.2. Uh, yeah, Nathan. Tanner, I wouldn't call Tanner Patton like that. Such a disdainful way. <laughs> Tanner, you look up 1 Corinthians 14.2, and Anna, look up 1 Corinthians 15.1, okay? Um, and then uh, we're going to have Mary and, and Lee. Mary, you look up 1 Corinthians 1.6, and Lee, look up 2 Corinthians 2.6. Okay, so the rest of you guys can follow, if you, turn your pages if you want, but just um, listen to what I'm going to, what I, the, the purpose of this is uh, the first verses are all going to be references to mystery, mysterion. The, the other ones are going to be references to martyrion. Okay, so you can see that even within Paul's writing, both are possible. So go ahead, Barry, start with 1 Corinthians 2.6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. Oh, read, uh, read a little bit farther. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for okay. our glory. Okay, so that verse 7, I should have had to read verse 7. That uh, secret wisdom, that's musterion. Okay? So in this passage, he uses musterion, okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.1. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Yeah, and again, that's musterion, mysteries of God. Okay? And then uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. That's good. So you just see him using mysteries like, I'm, I got great wisdom. I'm, I'm revealing to you great mysteries of God. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. You know that passage. 1 Corinthians 14.2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Okay, so there's again a use of mysteries, a little bit different context. But 1 Corinthians 15.51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Mm -hmm. So there's another mystery. So does Paul use mystery in his passage? He definitely uses it. Um, now, turn, 1 Corinthians 1, 6. I think that's Mary, right? Or, yeah. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Okay, so there he's clearly using the testimony about Christ. The witness about Christ, right? Um, so that's possible. And then in the last one, 2 Corinthians 2.6. For, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. For you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Oh, did I? Man, I got, maybe it's 1 Corinthians. No. Yeah, but no, she's right. She's got the right one. Um. Um, sorry, Lee, I think I gave you something that's wrong to mess that up in my notes. I'll find the right one later. Um, sorry. But I would say, by and large, I was able to give you six different references to mystery and only one to, to martyr, like martyrion, right? So let's just assume testimony is the correct reading. The SV actually takes it that way. So um, is this the testimony about God? Is it a testimony from God? Is it a testimony by God? Like, what, it, what is this testimony that he's talking about? I came proclaiming the testimony of God. How would you understand that? Is that really what he was proclaiming? The testimony about God or the testimony from God? It's hard to understand testimony in my opinion. 
Well, I mean, um, it could be, you know. But if it's the, it, and I, that's, Danny always laughs, that's my default, is to say both. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're going to, we're past time, so we've got to stop. Um, we were going to pick this up and try to answer this question as best I know how to answer it next week um, and uh, keep moving on. So, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that it would be uh, helpful to us, and I pray that it would be uh, preparatory as Kyle brings the word of God to our hearts in the service in just a few moments. We pray that you would work in us the fruit of the cross, that we would die to ourselves and we would live to you. In Jesus' name, amen.